Living God, thank you for this word that we've heard from Acts 16, 19 through 40. Take that word now in this preaching moment and make it come alive for us in the power of your spirit to teach us not only something from the past, but to have traction in the way that we live now in the present. Amen. Liberty and justice for all, the final phrase and the Pledge of Allegiance. It goes together with other optimistic slogans uh, that we pride ourselves in, at least in theory, in the United States. Uh, slogans like the American spirit or the American dream or the land of opportunity. And it's true that for millions of people over a couple hundred years, America has offered perhaps more opportunity for more different people than any other nation in the world. But behind that monument of our own national pride, there is the shadowy reality that the system applies differently for different people in different times in history. Now, as we re-engage with our sermon series in the book of Acts, we'll see a struggle for justice take place in a setting that is somewhat similar to our own. Philippi, a city in first century Macedonia, was a Roman colony. And like Americans, they were very proud of their justice system and their tolerance for new ideas and new philosophies and new ways of thinking. That is until, well, let's just see how it plays out. Now, you may recall from a couple weeks ago uh, from my sermon then that Paul and Silas were preaching the gospel of Jesus freely, especially uh, among the small Jewish community that was meeting for prayer down by the local river. Their message of the lordship of Jesus and his salvation transformed some of the, the lives of the locals there, lives like Lydia, a local businesswoman uh, who was a broker of purple textiles. Her whole household came to become followers of Jesus, and they opened their spacious estate to house the early church and the followers uh, of Jesus there in Philippi. Now, Paul and Silas, their, their preaching doesn't seem to be a problem because it's fairly private and it's fairly personal. They're down with Jewish people by the river. There's not large numbers of people going after them. And, and it seems like the attitude of the Philippians toward these little Christian group is live and let live. And that seems to work for a while. You know, the Philippians probably even pride themselves on how tolerant they are of, of these new ideas and how Roman they were being in their judicious, here condescending, view of this little Palestinian religious sect. But this tolerance evaporates as soon as the, the true deity, the true cultural values of Philippi are put in danger. One day, Paul's on his way to the place of prayer by the river, and they encounter this young girl who was possessed by the spirit of the mythical python, which allowed her to tell people's fortunes. Now, I, I know you're like, what did he just say? Uh, that sounds crazy. Uh, and I break it all down in my last sermon uh, in Acts 16, 1 through 18. So if you want to know more about that and you missed it, check out that sermon. Okay, anyway, so this girl is enslaved by two forces spiritual forces that possess her, and human evil, um, these men who are slavers. Uh, and these men, they make money off of her at her expense and at the expense of her humanity and dignity. Now, when Paul, through the power of Jesus, casts out this possessing spirit of, uh, in her and liberates her from spiritual slavery, the cultural cup of Philippi 
is poured out on the thirsty ground. I mean, their whole world is kind of turned upside down. All of a sudden, the anger and venom of fallen humanity comes crashing down on Paul and Silas. And I've got to ask, why? Was it because they were preaching the gospel? Was it because they healed a young girl? I mean, how could their actions or message be perceived as wrong, let alone illegal? See, the injustice sewn into the fabric of this story is that the Philippians valued their economic engine over and above human life. To them, market stability was more important than human beings made in God's image. And if you mess with the market, then be prepared to reckon with the power of the majority and the power of the state. Now, we know from the story that the slavers were angry because they could no longer profit from the slave girl because her powers were taken away with the evil spirit that was in her. But the charges they bring against Paul and Silas are strategically crafted to win over the local leaders. There's two charges to be exact. First, they said that these men were throwing the city into confusion. Now, that's a buzzword because Romans prided themselves on social order. Okay, And then second... Being Jews, they're teaching customs which it is not lawful for us to observe being Romans. So they point out the otherness of Paul and Silas. It's a well-known fact that Jews were looked at with great suspicion in the Roman world. And so the charges are basically saying, hey, get rid of these guys. They're un-Roman. They don't fit here. You know, they activate the age-old fear of the other. Nazis did the same thing. They blamed the Jews, and they blamed Catholics, and they blamed gays, and anyone who was different for their social and economic woes. The Romans, who were proud of their tolerant state, but, but they wouldn't tolerate monotheism that wasn't private and personal. Because once they began seeing conversions from Romans to Jews and Christians, then the wheels became, uh, began to come off their whole, their whole system. It's just like Americans who tout our land of the free for all, unless, of course, your freedom threatens my economic gain or makes me feel uncomfortable about my values and ethics. How many times in our own nation's history have we heard of groups of people who are charged in the public court of opinion with being un-American? Chinese immigrants, for example, in the 1800s were, were used to build the railroad and then they were cast out of the cities that, that housed them. When the two railroads from the east and west came together, the Chinese were there putting those last spikes in, but then they were removed from the photos. People wanted nothing to do with them once they were used up. Their economic gain was gone. You know, what's interesting is that even in our own area in Tacoma, Washington, uh, it, it's a pretty good-sized city, but there's no Chinatown there. Isn't that odd? There's a Chinatown in Seattle, there's Chinatowns in, in Vancouver, but, but in, in, in Tacoma's history, they forcibly removed all of the Chinese people. The Irish in our country were pushed down until other immigrants and freed slaves became easier targets. How quickly this disintegrates in, in the story in Acts from a disagreement of worldviews to dehumanization. Paul and Silas have brought an alternative perspective, and in retaliation, the fearful powers that be take their freedom and their humanity. So here's how they do it. They strip them in public to take away their dignity and to shame them. 
Then they beat them in public. Again, this isn't just to hurt Paul and Silas, but it's to shame them openly and publicly in the square. Then another form of shaming and torture is they put them in wooden stocks. These wooden devices had different size holes and different width of holes so that your legs would be stuck in them in most uncomfortable positions. And then they put them in the center cell of the jail into the deepest, darkest part of the prison. The power of the state is used to enforce the status quo and the position of the powerful and the culture of the economic engine over and against human dignity for all. Now, if you have the time, consider pausing the video or podcast for some reflection. I've got two questions. One, can you think of a current example where the power of the state or the majority is used to silence or degrade minority voices? And second, does your faith in Jesus ever put you in tension with our culture? And if so, what, what's an example or two? Okay, so Paul and Silas are now in jail on these trumped-up charges. They have every right to be scared and angry, and they probably were. In and of their own strength and their own position in society, they don't really have much of a chance to get out. They're in the hands of the powers who are outside their control. But instead of being in despair, they turn to a higher power yet. They turn to Jesus. And they're about midnight, it says, they're singing hymns and praises to God. And the rest of the prisoners, and likely the guards, could hear them. Paul and Silas found hope in the midst of this corruption. See, they knew deep down, just like we know deep down, that the world powers do not have the final say. Paul and Silas are able to sing praise because they put their faith in Jesus for the final outcomes. In the face of death, Jesus will win. In imprisonment, Jesus will win. Against grave injustice, eventually, Jesus will bring judgment and justice. He'll win. And then it happens sooner than expected. Earthquaking deliverance. At first, it seems like the deliverance is one-sided, that it is just for Paul and Silas. But all of a sudden, the focus of salvation and compassion shifts in a most unexpected direction. The jailer, either afraid of what his superiors might do to him, or ashamed that a prison break happened on his watch, he's about ready to commit suicide, to fall on his own sword, when Paul intervenes. Don't harm yourself. We're all here. What an intervention. I mean, the jailer was part of the corrupt system. He was an enemy. He could be the very one that put them in the stocks. But the Lord of Paul and Silas is the one who teaches us to love our enemies. How could they love this man in this situation? Make no mistake, evil is real. And people can really become evil. And evil will really pay in the end. But our job is not to be the judge or the jury or the executioner. We are to give grace without giving license for abuse. In past sermons, we've discussed the dignity of the imprisoned. But what about the dignity of the prison guard or the enslaver or the executioner 
or the pornographer, or the attorney caught up in evil schemes through a cascading uh, events, poor choices. We talked about how the dominant system tends to other minorities, but let's be careful not to other the individuals caught up in the system themselves. Jesus cares for the jailers and the magistrates and the sellers of purple cloth and tax collectors like Matthew and religious elites like Nicodemus and Pharisees like the Apostle Paul. In this story, Paul values the life of the jailer who is about to commit suicide. Now, earthquakes in the ancient world were often linked to the presence of gods and goddesses, at least from a pagan perspective. So the jailer believes that there has been divine intervention, and since it was Paul and Silas who were, you know, the main objects of that salvation and the main voices of hope in the darkness, the jailer turns to them seeking salvation. He knows he's in trouble. What he doesn't yet know is that it's not one of the Roman deities who's responsible for this miracle. It's a specific deity, Jesus the, Naz the Nazarene, Jesus of Nazareth. It's the king of nations, the creator of heaven and earth, the savior of the world who the jailer must trust. And so he does, along with his whole household. Now, here are two questions to ponder if you have time to pause the video or podcast. Paul and Silas sang hymns to encourage themselves in the Lord. How do you find hope in the midst of darkness? Do you have hymns that you go to, or certain scriptures, or sermons, or, or Christian community, or devotions, or prayer? How do you find hope in the midst of darkness? And the second question is this, who or what kind of person have you written off but needs Jesus rather than your hatred? In this final section of the story, we see that Paul is not satisfied with justice for himself personally. He makes sure that there's justice for all. In a fascinating turn of events, it comes to the attention of the magistrates that Paul and Silas are Roman citizens. Now, this is a huge deal because Roman citizens were protected from public beatings and humiliation uh, unless tried in a court and proven guilty. And in this case, Paul and Silas have been punished before a trial. Now, Philippi prided itself on being a Roman colony, and they were proud of being part of the Roman justice system, which saw itself as the most righteous uh, and just system in the ancient world. But what happened to Paul and Silas was an abomination of Roman justice. Now, here's a little backdrop. Fresh in Roman minds would have been the story of Gaius Verres, who is the former proconsul of Sicily. Now, just stick with me here. Gaius Verres abused his power openly, as a lot of corrupt leaders do and did, um, but he officially crossed the line when he was at odds with a certain man and he had that man crucified. Now, the man was a Roman citizen, but Verres thought his power could cover up the whole situation. The man kept saying, I'm a Roman citizen, I'm a Roman citizen, and to his dying breath he claimed, I am a Roman. Varys was removed from his position, went into exile, and was eventually executed by Mark Antony. So when Paul and Silas were saying, we're Romans, it literally brought fear and trembling upon the police and the magistrates. 
Terrified of what this political misstep could mean for their reputation and careers, the magistrates try and get Paul and Silas to just leave quietly. They don't want the bad press. It, it was what the powerful do over and over again. They violate the vulnerable and then they pay them off to keep quiet. Presidents pay off mistresses. Film producers protect their names with money and leverage and legalese. Religious institutions cover up abuse and fraud by hushing people or through in-house soft-hand investigations. Airline manufacturers pay off the families of the dead in exchange for anti-defamation clauses. And the cycle repeats itself because no one demands accountability. The magistrates expect Paul and Silas to just go away like dogs with their tails between their legs, thinking that a private apology would suffice. Now, Paul may be a wandering teacher from Palestine, insignificant in the eyes of the powerful elites, but he was a Roman citizen, and that carried significant social weight. Paul and Silas sensed the opportunity to, to help others by leveraging their Roman citizenship to challenge the Roman system. See, these guys are dual citizens. Citizens first and foremost of the kingdom of God, but in this life, they're also citizens of, of the Roman Empire. Rather than using their privilege to go along with the status quo, they use their citizenship as a tool to do justice. So first, by making a public spectacle of this abuse of power, it put the leaders of Philippi on notice. The people would all be watching. It would make the leaders accountable. They'd have to be on their best behavior for some time period after this incident. So by taking the risk to confront power publicly, Paul and Silas are seeking to make a more just city by standing up to corruption. But second, Paul and Silas are protecting the reputation of Jesus and the church. To be beaten and stripped in public was, like I said before, much more than physical punishment, and even more than psychological punishment. It was a shaming act. Paul and Silas were not only marked by personal shame, but their associations would incur shame on their behalf. So the early church and Lydia and the slave girl uh, that Jesus rescued from spiritual slavery, uh, the jailer and his family, the shame from Paul and Silas would stick on all of them. But you know what else was sticky in the ancient world? Honor. And the only way to erase the shame of this scenario would be to be publicly vindicated. And then they would not only renew their honor, but that honor would be transferred to all of their associates. So Paul cares too much about his new friends and the reputation of Jesus to just take a buyout or to leave sheepishly. He doesn't want shame to stick to Jesus or stick to the church. And so he makes a public scene. It's an act of justice. And in the final scene, we have this microcosm of the power of the gospel. In the house of Lydia, the wealthy businesswoman gathered Palestinian evangelists, the jailer and his family, and potentially the slave girl, and any number of other Jesus followers from all walks of life. There is no place in the Roman societal structure where all of those classes and genders and ethnicities would share table fellowship. It's truly the church and all of its glory in someone's home.
As we close this section and reflect on the holiday weekend where we can be thankful for certain freedoms, let's consider this closing question. How could you use your privilege, voice, vote, position in the kingdom of America to serve the agenda of the kingdom of God and the shalom of all?